Well, if you would, this morning, I want you to put your marker in Exodus chapter 12. Go ahead and put your ribbon in Exodus chapter 12. And then we're going to go to our normal place in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. As we've been going through the book of Mark, as I repeat every Sunday, we've seen that Mark looks at Jesus as the suffering servant of God, as prophesied in the book of Isaiah, places like chapter three, uh, 53 and other places. And Mark is much more concerned with the works of Christ as opposed to the words of Christ. We, we see that Mark is constantly moving from one event, one healing, one exorcism, uh, training of the disciples, etc., and then for the past several weeks we have been, we're actually in the middle of crucifixion week. I want to remind you that because we spent two chapters almost uh, with this dispute with the Sanhedrin at the temple. Uh, but here in chapter 14 we looked last week at uh, when, they were, when Jesus and his disciples uh, were in the house of Simon the leper and Mary, the sister of Lazarus, I mean, uh, yeah, comes in and... and uh, breaks this spikener, this, this ointment, this perfume, uh, very costly. It would have cost about a year's wages. And she anoints the head and feet of Jesus. And we see that his disciples are upset by this. And most specifically, Judas was upset about it. He said, you know, this could have been sold to the poor and are sold and given us the money and we could give it to the poor. But we understand and we see this in John's gospel in different places. Uh, Judas held the money bag and... He wasn't planning on giving it to the poor. He was planning on making a pocket transaction. And that's why he's followed Jesus up to this point. We're going to look at Jesus more in de- uh, Judas more in depth next week. Uh, but Judas was a thief. He wanted money. And when he realized that Jesus was not here to take the throne by force, and it was not going to be lucrative for him, this is when he turned on Jesus. And now you have Judas and the Sanhedrin The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're conspiring to kill Jesus now, and they're trying to do it in private. Understand that this is Passover week. There's over 300,000 pilgrims that have come in for this event, for this celebration. And so it's crowded. There's a lot of people. They don't want to uh, cause a rage among the people who support Jesus. So they're trying to do this in private. And here we find ourselves in our text today at the Last Supper or the Last Passover here. And this is really, man, the stuff here, uh, I'll never be able to scratch the surface of all this means to us, but it's so important and so special. Jesus right now as we read, He is just hours away from being arrested, and He is less than 24 hours away from His death. And so we're walking on some pretty sacred ground this morning. Um, When you think about Passover... Before I read this, I think it's important to remind you, this was a yearly celebration of the Jews. It was actually the most sacred and the most popular thing that they did throughout the year. And you had Passover, and then you had the week of unleavened bread, and they were so intertwined that sometimes the phrases are used interchangeably. But this comes from Exodus chapter 12, and that's what we're going to look at ultimately this morning. But if you'll remember... Uh, when the, the Israelites were in slavery to Egypt and God had already performed nine plagues and Pharaoh still refused to let his people go, the last plague, the tenth and final, 
was the death of the firstborn in every household. And God had commanded Moses to tell the people that if you took this lamb, this spotless uh, lamb without blemish, and you had the, you would slaughter it and you would uh, take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood, and if you would take that blood and paint it on the doorpost, that the death angel would pass over that household and the judgment would be spared. That's why they call this the Feast of Passover, because the judgment of God passed over the homes due to the blood of the Lamb. And I think you're already seeing the symbolism here. Um, and so this is what they celebrated and why they celebrated. Uh, Christ and His disciples were making preparation before all their options ran out with all these people being in town. Uh, and Christ uh, tells Peter and John to go out and find a man carrying a water pitcher and follow him. Let's look at this. Uh, Mark chapter 14 beginning verse 12. It says, In the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where will thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? And he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him, and wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good men of the house, The master saith, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared. There make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready for the Passover. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you this morning. And God, I just pray that uh, you would just empty me of sin and self today, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit God, that you would be glorified and magnified in the message that we would see you high and lifted up. God, that you would just give me clarity of thought and speech. And I pray that these words would go past our ears and into our hearts. God, that we would see you as you are, Lord, and see us as we are. Father, I give this service to you, and we'll thank you and praise you for it. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen. We're looking this morning at the thought of Christ our Passover, or Christ our Passover lamb, you could say it that way. Um, But here we see that Jesus tells His disciples, Peter and John, to go into the city and find this man carrying a water pitcher, follow him, and when he gets to his house, ask him if he has a guest chamber uh, that their master and them can use to celebrate the Passover. Now, I know this sounds a little bit vague and maybe a little bit strange. I mean, you're walking through a city with hundreds of thousands of people, and Jesus said, find the man that's carrying the water pitcher. Well, that was extremely uncommon for that day because that was mainly the job that the women did was the carrying of the water in the morning and evening. But even if a man was going to do this, he wouldn't usually use a water pitcher. It was more like an animal skin bag or and it was just it was just a cultural thing. So when they found the man that was carrying the water pitcher, they said, "Oh, that's him." And so they made preparations for this Passover. I also think it's important to understand that when they had this last supper, that they are having it on the Passover. This is so important to get this. They are celebrating Passover together. They are eating this meal together. And yet Christ was also crucified on the Passover. You say, how is that possible? Because the Jewish days, instead, you know, like we go from noon to noon. That, that's the way we separate our days pretty much. Or, or 12 uh, p.m. to 12 a.m. I guess I should say it that way. 
But they go from evening to evening. The Jewish day starts in the evening or at sundown and goes to sundown the next day. So they're celebrating this Passover meal in the evening of Passover. And Christ is crucified the next afternoon and yet it's still within the the 24-hour Passover. And so that's important to remember. And one thing I love about this, and it's so important when you get to subjects like this... When you look at the Scriptures, we, we can trust the Bible as the Word of God. It is the absolute standard of truth. It is the absolute standard of our faith and practice. And one of the greatest ways that we know this is a God book and not a man book is because of the unity. You have, within these pages, these 66 books, you have about 40 authors writing over a span of about 1,400 years. Many of these authors never met one another. They didn't live during the same time. They didn't live in the same place. And yet it reads as if there is one author. Here you have, we're about to go to Exodus 12. In fact, you can go ahead and go there. We're going to spend the remainder of our time there. But we just read about this Passover uh, in the book of Mark. And we're going to understand before this sermon is over that Christ is and was our Passover lamb. And of all the days that he could have been crucified, it was this day. And what we're going to do is we're going to read in the book of Exodus from the pen of Moses thousands of years before what we just read in Mark. And yet it's going to be the same thing. And so today we're going to look at Christ, our Passover lamb. Paul, the Apostle Paul, called him our Passover lamb that was, was sacrificed in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7. And so the question that I want to try to answer today is, what can the Passover feast teach us about Christ, our Passover lamb? The first thing that we see, it teaches us about the man, Christ. The Christ the man, or the man, Christ. And so going back to Exodus chapter 12, uh, when the Passover was instituted, let's read some of these things. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. This is important. A male of the first year. You should take it out from the sheep and from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses, wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire." his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning you shall burn it with fire. And thus shall ye eat with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so when we, when we see the description 
of what this lamb was supposed to be and what they were supposed to do with it. It is such a great picture of Jesus Christ. We cannot miss this. How is this lamb reminiscent of the Lord Jesus Christ with these details here? Uh, Well, uh, first of all, the lamb was to be a male without spot or blemish. And is Jesus Christ not the spotless, sinless lamb of God? Uh, The lamb... Was to, be, um, was to be put out for four days. It was, be, it was to be selected on the tenth of the month, but it was to be separated from the other sheep and goats and put up so that it could be examined for a period of four days to see if it truly had any defects. And was Christ not separated walking this earth for over 30 years? Was He not tested for over 30 years? And yet He lived a sinless life. Jesus Christ never sinned as the God-man. He never sinned. He lived the sinless life that we could never live, and therefore uh, He was not fit for the condemnation of God. Um, Christ came to this earth not only to die for us, but to live for us. He didn't just say it. He proved it by His life. Christ didn't. I mean, it would have been awesome... If Christ had just, you know, shot down to the earth and died for us, I mean, that would have been no small thing. But the fact that He was born of a virgin and He lived among His creatures, His sinful creatures, for over 30 years, uh, and He never sinned. And the thing about it is He never even performed a miracle until He started His ministry. The first miracle of Jesus was the wedding at Cana when He turned the water to wine. The Bible talks about this beginning of miracles. Did Jesus... I mean, think about him growing up, uh, working in a carpenter shop and living such a normal life to a poor family. I mean, how easy could it have been to just snap his fingers or, or speak a word and have something been built or done, but he didn't do that. And, and even in the wilderness, when, when Satan tempted Jesus, uh, he, he said, if you're truly the Son of God, why don't you just make these stones into bread so you can eat? But that wasn't the will of God. He never did a miracle to his own benefit. It was always to the benefit of somebody else and always to bring glory to God the Father. He never sinned even in the way that He performed His miracles. He was in the will of God. And here's another great picture here. But um, this lamb, when they would take it to the priest, uh, the priest would cut it and uh, take some of that blood and sprinkle it on the base of the altar And then he would return that lamb to the worshiper with the head still attached and the legs not broken. And they would take it back to their house. And this is important because when you read the Gospel of John, as Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that the thieves next to him on the right and the left, they died. Or excuse me, they didn't die. And because of that, it was custom the Roman soldiers would break their legs. They didn't break the legs of Christ because He had already died. You find this in John chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. Now, why would the Bible include this minute, seemingly minute detail? It's because it was a fulfillment of prophecy, and it was also a picture of this lamb that was returned to the worshiper with the legs unbroken, slaughtered, but not broken. And so this is actually a fulfillment of what Moses said in Numbers chapter 9 and verse 12. And so even this is a fulfillment of prophecy. 
I love this too because when the families would get the lamb from the priest and they would take it home, they would have to remove all of the leaven from their house. This would begin the, the feast of unleavened bread that lasted about a week. And they would have to remove all leaven, all semblance of leaven. They would have to clean up their house and make sure there was no leaven in the house. And then they would bring uh, this lamb in. And, of course, in the Bible we know that leaven or yeast is a type or a picture of sin. This is why when we take of the Lord's Supper, we do communion, we partake of unleavened bread because it represents the sinless body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what a picture this is. When the Lamb comes in, the sin goes out. When, the, when we get saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, when He takes residence in our hearts, when we repent and believe the gospel and He comes to dwell in our heart by His Holy Spirit, listen, the sin is cleaned up. And even though, yes, until we die, we will be battling with this sin nature to some degree or another, uh, the sin is cleansed, it's forgiven, it's wiped away, it is completely removed from the records of heaven. We can be forgiven and cleansed and be made right with the God that created us. Amen. What a wonderful picture that is. When the Lamb comes in, Amen. the sin goes out. I also love this. When they started the week of unleavened bread, they also ceased from all their works. They didn't do any work during this time. Friend, when you get saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, when you repent of your dead works and your sin and He saves you by His grace, you get to cease from all these works. Now listen, understand what I'm saying, and, and I've said this before and you understand where I'm coming from. Uh, we don't work in order to be saved. We work on the count that we are saved. Amen. We're, we're at rest. I'm at peace with my Creator. I don't have to worry. I don't have to go to bed at night and wonder if I did something or thought something or said something that might have caused me to lose my salvation. It doesn't work that way. He saves His children to the uttermost. Amen. He's not a failure as a priest. He's not a failure as an advocate or as a Savior. He keeps us saved. He not only saves us, He keeps us saved. And of all the things that I don't know, I don't know what tomorrow holds. I don't know what next week or next year holds. I mean, listen, I could get cancer. I could die in a car wreck. Something tragic could take place in my family. The, the finances may bottom out. The economy may be destroyed. Who knows? But I do know this. I know that I know that I'm saved. Amen. And even if I die, I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven. My sins are cleansed, they're forgiven, they're under the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't have to worry about that. that it's forever settled in heaven. Amen. And so we see they cease from their works. I have ceased from my dead works of trying to please a God that is way too holy. His standard is way too high. I could never meet it. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to do that. What a rest that comes with that. When the Lamb moves in, the sin and the dead works move out. And... I love the picture given of this in the New Testament. When John the Baptist saw Christ walking to the Jordan River that day, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That's John 1 and verse 29. Christ is our Passover Lamb. And as I said, of all the days of the year that He could have been crucified, it was the Passover. And by the way, this was the last thing that the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted 
They were trying to conspire in secret so this would not happen. They wanted to wait until everybody had left from this celebration and then kill Jesus. But the sovereignty of God can't be overruled. And he was, he was crucified for everybody to see on Passover. And by the way, one last type, and I'll move on to my next point. This is amazing to me. And I, I, you won't find this in Scripture, but I, I found a, a really good book that I had in my library about Jewish customs and how they actually celebrated the Passover. And of course, they had added a few things to what you find in the Scriptures and what God commanded Moses to do. But even according to Jewish tradition... The lambs, the Passover lamb that was to be taken to the priest, they were supposed to be slaughtered around 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Anybody know what time Jesus gave up the ghost? It was the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. You can't even make this stuff up. Isn't this amazing? He gave up the ghost at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, and so we, we cannot miss the type here, the, the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, how it pointed to Jesus Christ. So we see that. But then secondly, this, this Passover teaches us about God's mandatory judgment. Not only about the man, but about His mandatory judgment. Now, what I'm fixing to teach you, and you've heard me say this before, it's not far into this church But it's definitely unpopular. We're going to talk about the judgment of God, the holiness of God, the wrath and the justice of God. And listen, it is absolutely true. God is holy, holy, holy. You'll never find Him called love, love, love. God is holy. He's righteous. Now, bear with me because God is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. And so I'm fixing to cut it open, but we're going to salve it up before we leave. So... But I've I got to tell you the truth, not what I want to say, but what the Bible says. And with, listen, without the wrath of God, without the justice and holiness of God, the cross doesn't even make any sense. The Passover lamb doesn't even make any sense. If you don't believe that God is a God of wrath, then what did Jesus die to save us from? Right. Our self-esteem? I don't think so. <laughs> we see His mandatory judgment. Look at Exodus 12 and verse 12. It says, for I will pass through the land. God is saying this now. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so, you know, I know that um, later on in this, this particular text, you find where the death angel passed through and killed the firstborn of all those that didn't have the blood over the door. And some people try to separate that. I've even heard people try to blame the devil for this. Listen, there's nothing that took place on this night that was separated from God. That's why God just flat out says, I am doing this. And right off the bat, um, let me just deal with something doctrinal and I'll move on. But in, in the past, when I've dealt with, with atheists and different skeptics and whatnot, and I've talked to them, I've witnessed them, they have tried to make God out to be a murderer, as if He's some kind of hypocrite. They say, well, how can God command people not to kill, and then He does it? Let me explain to you the difference between murder and justice. If, God forbid, if you know, somebody came and, and killed some of my family... It would be wrong for me, and it would, first of all, it's wrong for them to do that. That's murder. But on my part, it would be wrong for me to go and slay that person. 
as angry as I would be and as justified as I would feel, that would be wrong. That's murder. What would be just is if that murderer went on trial in front of a judge and a jury of his peers and sentenced to death, and then he was executed by the state, which is ordained by God. When it comes to God, God is the supreme ruler of all. He's the righteous judge. He is the judge, jury, and executioner, and he has all the facts about everybody's life. And so when God does this, he is acting as the judge And there's nothing wrong with justice, especially considering that we're all sinners that deserve the judgment and wrath of God. And I find this interesting. This is very important here. You you can't miss this. But notice carefully that in verse 12, God says that He will smite all the firstborn in Egypt. He didn't say the firstborn of Egypt. What, What this means is that He made no distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. He made no distinction between old and young, rich, poor. Uh, He didn't care about their race or social status or class. Everybody was under the same condemnation. That is so important to understand. It's the same way today, friend. Listen, we find ourselves in the same boat. Death is coming. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We're all headed for death. Death is coming, and one day we will stand before the holy and righteous God that created us, and where will we stand? Especially understanding that. It's it's so amazing to me. And I'm telling you, this is where our churches are missing it. This is where the cults miss it. This is the greatest missing piece in the American church is the holiness and fierce wrath of Almighty God. You won't hardly ever hear it preached. God is nothing but a father, grandfather figure on a rocking chair on the porch of heaven. He is he's weak and He's beggarly. That's not the God of the Bible. That's right. That's right. Yep. And He will judge and punish sin. And when I talk to people, it's so amazing, and even the book of Proverbs talks about this, how man... It will be quick to speak of his own goodness. And you ask him, well, why do you think you're right with God? Or why do you, why do you think you're a good person? And it's always, it's always based on something that they do. Well, I go to church. Well, I, I work at a, a charity or I give money to charity or I tithe or I'm a good person or I, I'm a good husband or I work hard. It's all about the things that we do. And the confusion is this. That somehow God is going to weigh out our good and bad works. And if, we, if our good works outweigh our bad works, well then God will let us in and everybody applauds and yeah, you did it. And That's not the way this works. Right. It's about breaking the laws of God, sinning against God. And as I say all the time, good works can never erase broken laws. It's not going to work in the state of Utah and it doesn't work in heaven's court. And so that's really a scary thing considering that the Bible says in places like Romans 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. That there is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good. There is none that understands. Or in um, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All means you, it means me, it means everybody that you'll meet. Uh, Isaiah 64 and verse 6, 
We are all as an unclean thing, and our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. We have violated God's law. Our sin is an offense to a holy and just God, and He has every right to condemn us and absolutely no reason to spare us. And I know this is the problem that we run into. I know that people... You know, their eyes get as big as saucers when they hear preaching like this. But I took it right out of the Bible. You can take it up with Moses and the Holy Ghost because they're the ones that wrote it. Uh, but here's the thing. If, you, if you're trying to gauge your life as to whether you're good or bad, what standard are you using? That, that's what it all comes down to. Good by what standard? If you think you're a good person, I would say good by what standard? Because if you have made up your own standard... You're not going to sit in judgment of yourself. We would all win in that situation. We would all win in that situation. But we're going to be judged by the standard of God. That ought to make us tremble. I, I, can't, help but get ch- I can't help but chuckle at folks when they, they tell me, and I've, I've said this before, but they, they say to me, well, yeah, well, only God can judge me. And I say, well, that ought to scare you. That ought to scare you. Because He knows every thought we've ever thought. He knows everything we've ever done. Even the things we thought that were done in secret, He knows everything that has ever come out of our mouth. Yeah, that should scare us. If God is holy, and He is, and He's omniscient, and He is, He, the eyes of the Lord in every place, beholding evil and good, that should scare us. We see His mandatory judgment. The reason it's mandatory is because God in His holiness, He must punish sin. He cannot tolerate it. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a just and wrathful God. Because when we die, our soul will spend eternity in a place called hell, where we'll be tormented for all eternity, or heaven where we'll be in bliss and peace and joy for all eternity. But God must punish sin. I'm not going to leave it like this, though. God is also a God of mercy and love. Number three, mercy and love. Not only mandatory judgment, but mercy and love. Look at verse 13. I love this. Chapter Exodus 12 and verse 13. It says, "...in the blood..." shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And so even in judgment, there is mercy. Anyone, whether it be Egyptian, Israelite, rich, poor, doesn't matter if anyone had put that blood over the door, he would have passed over. Now, when the family had taken the lamb to the priest, he had, he had cut its throat, uh, sprinkled some blood on the base of the altar, and they brought it back home. They were instructed to drain the rest of the blood into a basin. They would take a hyssop limb, dip it into the blood. They would paint it over the doorpost. And God promised that He would pass over all the houses where the blood of the lamb was on the doorpost. Uh, God said that His wrath would be satisfied by the blood of the lamb. Now listen here, some people might think it cruel that God would smite all the firstborn in Egypt, but I love this quote that I came across by Peter Enns. Listen to this. He said, The Passover was a constant reminder to Israel that their life came from death. And for those paying attention, 
It is also a reminder that although God spared the firstborn of the Israelites, He did not spare His own Son. God spared the firstborn of the Israelites due to the blood on the door, but He did not even spare His own Son. God released His wrath on Jesus Christ on, on His Son. And this is so important. I think people have such a misunderstanding of the cross. And I, I preach this every time we get on this subject. I can't help it. It's here. It's important. Not many people talk about it. But the Romans and the Jews didn't kill Jesus. It was God the Father. God the Father laid our sin upon Him while He was on that cross. And then, because He was wearing our sin, God the Father put His wrath for our sin on His Son. God slayed Jesus Christ. God smote His own Son. It pleased God to bruise Him. And so not only did He wear our sin, but He suffered our wrath that we deserve. And so that is the justice and mercy and grace of God. He must punish sin. But God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son to bear our sin, that if anyone would believe on Him they would be saved from the wrath of God. God, like an, Jesus Christ, like an umbrella, blocks the rain of the wrath of God from all those who repent and trust Him. I can't think of a better deal. How could anybody shake a fist at God and say that He's unrighteous or unjust or too cruel or too wrathful when He gave His only begotten Son that we could escape the wrath of God? He can't sweep sin under the rug. He can't just not have wrath. He would be unrighteous if He did. The Bible says in Hebrews 9 and verse 22 that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 talking about Christ in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. 1 Peter 1 verses 18 through 21. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by Him do believe in God that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Can I say that you know, we talked about the, the Lamb of God in the Old Testament. We talk about the Lamb of God in the Gospels. What about in the end in Revelation? I love what Revelation chapter 5 verses 9 and 10 say that they are worshiping the Lamb of God even right now. We're going to join in that chorus one day. We're going to worship Him. Why? Because of His blood. That's the reason we're going to be there. Because of His sacrifice, that's why we're going to be there. The question is... Has the blood been applied to your heart and life? Because death is coming, but Christ is our Passover lamb. And I, I know this is not a comfortable topic to talk about, but it's just the truth of the matter. Death is coming. It is a humbling thing to know that not only is death coming to us, but death is coming to every person that we love. Death is coming. Has the blood of Christ been applied to your heart and life through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to Him today for forgiveness and salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We can't. 
We can't. Nobody will ever stand before God and say, well, Lord, I want to be saved. I wanted to be in a right relationship with you. I wanted to go to heaven, but you didn't provide a way. Nobody can ever or will ever be able to say that. He is a just and a loving God. In fact, He is just because He's loving. We've seen Christ as our Passover lamb. We've seen it uh, speak to the man of Christ. We've seen it speak to the mandatory judgment of God. We've seen it speak to the mercy and the grace of God. And I'll close with this thought. Uh, as I mentioned, I was reading a, a book of Jewish customs on the Passover and how they celebrate it, and I was really intrigued by this here. But it said that when the, the family, Dr. Everett Ferguson said, when the family gathered around this table reclining, they have chairs like we did, they would recline on the floor, but they would, have, they would bring the lamb in, and when it came time... After they had taken it to the priest and they had drained the blood and all, all the things they did, they would roast the lamb and they would eat it together with bitter herbs. And as they were seated at the table as a family around this lamb, this Passover supper, um, there was a Jewish custom where the eldest son would turn to the father and he would say, Father, why is this night so special? Why is it more special than other nights? And the father would reply and he would give a brief history of the children of Israel and how God had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt and out of the bondage of Pharaoh. And then after he got through with that, he would close his statement with this sentence. He would say, this night is special because it begins in disgrace, but it ends in glory. Is that not what happened on the night that we just read about in Mark? Betrayed, arrested, uh, going through a series of mock trials, beaten, had the hair ripped out of his face, whipped 39 times, nailed to a Roman cross with a crown of thorns on his head. It may have started in disgrace, but it ends in glory. And isn't it wonderful that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've messed up, you can be forgiven. What began in disgrace can end in forgiveness. It can forget, uh, end in glory. You can be forgiven and made right. Your sins can be washed away if you just repent and put your faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ because it is the only thing that appeases and satisfies the wrath of a holy God. That is the greatest story that's ever been told, and it's true. It's true. Christ is our Passover lamb who died for our sin according to the Scriptures, was buried and rose again the third day, and you can be forgiven. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved because He is our Passover lamb. We see, and uh, I won't even read it for the sake of time, but you do see where the death angel passed through, and you do see where Pharaoh finally had to let the children go, and they passed the Red Sea. They were free from Egypt. Egypt is a type of the world. It's a picture of the world. And if you're lost today, you're ensnared by this world system. You're a slave to your sin nature. You're a sin to the flesh. You're a sin to your lust. You need to be saved from the penalty and power of your sin. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that.